You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, everybody. Dave here with a quick note to kindly request that if you have not already done so, please be sure to check out our Research Saturday show. Each week, I speak with cybersecurity investigators and analysts about their latest research. It's in the same feed as the daily podcast, and of course, you can also find it on our website, thecyberwire.com. It's Research Saturday. We hope you'll give it a try. Thanks. Google's cloud services recover from network congestion. Gandcrab's proprietors say they're retiring rich at the end of the month. Black Squid delivers the XM Rig Monero miner. Updates on the Baltimore ransomware incident. Too many machines have not yet been patched against Bluekeep. A CEO's been sentenced for providing criminals crypto. The U.S. Justice Department is said to be preparing an antitrust investigation of Google. And the persistence of chaos has been sold for $1.3 million. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, June 3rd, 2019. Google's cloud suffered worldwide outages yesterday. These are now fixed and seem to have amounted to a nuisance as opposed to a disaster. But observers point out that the incident suggests that any cloud may not be as reliable as its users typically assume. And if you'll forgive us a tangent, we can't help wondering if the cloud isn't bulletproof would be a mixed metaphor. On the one hand, no cloud would deflect a bullet, so the metaphor would be a lousy one. On the other hand, a cloud's bulletproof in the sense that you could shoot bullets through it all day and not harm the cloud. So maybe that metaphor is okay after all. All good things come to an end. The criminal proprietors of Gandcrab Ransomware say they've made enough money, $2.5 billion if they're to be believed, and that they plan to call it a day and retire at the end of June to enjoy a well-deserved retirement. They advise holdout victims to act now and pay up soon, which isn't necessarily good advice, of course, since it's not exactly what the lawyers would call an admission against interest. Gandcrab appeared in January 2018 and quickly became a black market leader. The Gandcrab gang can't resist a little crowing. They said, We have now proven that by doing evil deeds, retribution does not come. Well, not yet, but retribution can reach you in retirement and on the lam. Trend Micro describes Black Squid, a criminal campaign that distributes the XM rig miner. For now, the campaign is after Monero cryptocurrency, but there's no reason to think its approach can't and won't be used to drop other payloads in the future. Black Squid is interestingly complex. It appears to make use of at least eight distinct exploits, several of them well-known and, in principle, patched. NSA denied, in discussions with Maryland Representative Rupersberger, that the agency's tools had anything to do with the Baltimore ransomware attack. 
In particular, NSA said it had no evidence that the Eternal Blue vulnerability played a role in the incident. Some have read this as a non-denial denial, for example, the Washington Post, but the general sentiment seems to be that Baltimore is far more sinning than sinned against. More than two weeks ago, Microsoft urged every affected user to patch against the BlueKeep vulnerability, but patching hasn't gone as quickly as might have hoped. Around 900,000 machines are thought to still be vulnerable. Someone's out there scanning for those machines. Researchers at Graynoise have observed scans from Tor exit nodes. That's from the exit nodes, not of the exit nodes, as we think we might have misspoken last Tuesday. The danger's still out there. Let all apply the lessons Baltimore learned the hard way and patch. The U.S. Justice Department has begun preparing an antitrust case against Google, according to multiple sources. An earlier investigation by the Federal Trade Commission, whose responsibility in such matters overlaps that of the Justice Department, looked bad for Mountain View, but ultimately Google emerged in 2013 essentially unscathed and, of course, quite intact. The current investigation is said to be in its preliminary phases, with justices and the FTC sorting out the equities. Apple kicked off their Worldwide Developer Conference earlier today, showing off new hardware and software and services. An area that Apple likes to emphasize is privacy. But just how much does Apple's crowing align with reality? The CyberWire's Tamika Smith has this report. Now we turn our attention to a new article that looks into the secret life of your phone. As you would expect, various apps that you enjoy using, whether to purchase food or smart TVs, are tracking your activity. But to what degree? Here to talk more about this is Jeffrey Fowler. He's a tech columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining the program, Jeffrey. You bet. So you conducted a privacy investigation into your own phone and published the findings in a recent article you wrote called It's the Middle of the Night. Do you know who your phone is talking to? What did you discover? I found my phone is talking to lots of companies that I have never heard of and in some cases sending them a lot of really personal information about me. So basically what I did is I, with the help of a company called Disconnect and uh, their CTO who used to work for the NSA, his name is Patrick Jackson, We ran this experiment on my phone and hooked it into a system that tracked all of the incoming and outgoing data. And we did this while I was sleeping every night. Would wake up in the morning and I would look at that traffic and see what was being sent. Some of it was encrypted, but a lot of it wasn't. And for the stuff that wasn't, I was just shocked to see the names of some of these companies that were receiving my personal data that I had not installed in my phone myself. Turns out they were tracker companies that had been embedded in these apps that I had installed on my phone, you know, used for a wide variety of purposes, everything from analytics to marketing to who knows what, because you really, really couldn't tell. So one of the highlights in your article, it mentions privacy policies and what they're really used for. How does this tie into these app trackers? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when you when you talk with Apple or even some of these companies about it, they say, well, listen, if you install this app on your phone, you have essentially agreed to the privacy policy of these companies. First of all, most people do not look at the privacy policies for apps. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and even if you do, they're extremely vague on this topic about sharing your personal data with third parties. And in some cases, or at least one case, uh, an app called Citizen, I found that they were sharing data in a way that violated their own policy. They said they wouldn't send personally identifiable information 
out to trackers or other third parties, and they were. This activity seems to be abusing Apple's background refresh functionality in the iOS. Is there any indication that Apple could clamp down on this? I think there's a number of things that Apple could do here. So first of all, just a reminder, Apple is the company that heavily markets the privacy of the iPhone as a reason to buy one. It put out a billboard at CES earlier this year um, that said what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. And my experiments certainly show that that is not the case. What could Apple do here? Partially, it could be about restricting what kinds of activity is allowed to happen in the background. By default, apps turned on, they're allowed to refresh in the background on their own. But I think that's only part of the problem. These apps are also sharing our data with third-party tracker companies during the day too, right? If you open that app in the middle of the day, you don't really have much transparency into what is being shared. So I think one thing Apple should do is force these companies to be more transparent about what they're up to. I mean, GDPR caused a lot of websites to have to flag when they use cookies. Uh, And so maybe apps should have to do the same thing. You might think twice, for example, about using DoorDash if every time you opened it up, you got a message saying, just a reminder, we're using nine different trackers uh, to track you in all these different ways. Is that cool? And then you could say yes or no. What about your experiment surprised you? I think that it was happening on an iPhone. I'm a tech columnist for The Post. I'm aware that there's this whole data economy out there. But Apple has done a very good job of making a lot of us believe it thinks differently when it comes to privacy and it goes out of its way to protect us. But it seems like they really have a big blind spot when it comes to the app store that they curate. There's a lot of activity happening there that only took me a week of looking under the covers to find stuff that violated privacy policies, violated their terms, Um, And are they really doing enough to check these apps on our behalf? Now, some people think this is a case of app developers hiding excessive sharing permissions and the end user license agreement. What's your thought on that? Look, definitely apps are taking as much data as they can. um, And they're getting away with it. Apple does give you controls uh, as a a user to, to limit, you know, oh, you don't necessarily have to show your, uh, share your, your exact location with an app where you don't have to share your contacts. And those are all good things that people should spend more time thinking about. Um, But uh, the truth is most people just click yes on whatever the apps ask for, and then they get it. And so that's a big hole that we're all falling into. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. We'll definitely be tracking what's happening with these apps. And we'd love to have you back on the show to talk more about it. You bet. That's Jeffrey Fowler. He's a tech columnist for The Washington Post. He wrote an article. It's the middle of the night. Do you know who your phone is talking to? You can read the full article on their website. The CEO of Phantom Secure, Vincent Ramos, was sentenced last Tuesday in a U.S. federal court to nine years in prison and also told to forfeit some $80 million in stuff he'd accumulated, homes, gold coins, cryptocurrency, things like that. Mr. Ramos has copped a guilty plea to charges connected with selling encrypted BlackBerry phones to a variety of bad actors, including the Sinloa drug cartel and the Australian chapters of the Hells Angels. The Angels are said to have used the phones to coordinate several murders. The AP calls the phantom phones gutted, uncrackable smartphones that, for a subscription, could send encrypted text messages through a secure network based in Panama and Hong Kong. They could also be wiped remotely should the users feel the heat breathing down their neck. The U.S. case was prosecuted in a San Diego court, but the investigation was a joint U.S.-Canadian-Australian one. Mr. Ramos is Canadian and a resident of Greater Vancouver. 
The case is interesting in that it apparently represents the first case in which someone has been convicted of providing encrypted devices to criminal organizations. We should point out that Phantom Secure is not to be confused with Phantom Cyber, the entirely legitimate company that gained visibility in the RSA Conference Innovation Sandbox and was subsequently acquired in April of 2018 by Splunk. And hey, check it out. The Persistence of Chaos, a Samsung NC10 laptop, infested with six, count them, six bits of malware, WannaCry, Black Energy, I Love You, My Doom, So Big, and Dark Tequila, is now off the market. It sold for $1.3 million. If that sounds pricey for an 11-year-old and very dirty laptop, well, dang it, it's art, you Philistine, you Square you, you Chromebook user you. Forgive us. Art does have the power to move us, doesn't it? And the unnamed person who parted with $1.3 million to own it is now the owner of a genuine 100% certificated work of art. After all, did Duchamp disinfect Fountain with Lysol before displaying it? We have it on good authority that the answer is no. But artist Gua O'Dong, or more probably his adult sponsors over at security firm Deep Instinct, wanted to play it safe. Seems kind of a shame. Toronto's National Post, which has assumed a very straight-faced pose, which may or may not be ironic, with respect to its reporting on the transaction, says that Mr. Gua first achieved minor eclat in the art world by a performance piece in 2017 in which he rode a Segway around Brooklyn while leading or being led by a hipster on a leash. We looked up images of the work, called Hipster on a Leash, and we're sorry to report that, for one, the hipster hardly seems to qualify as a hipster because his shorts, sunglasses, and short sleeve shirt look a lot more like routine New York tourist apparel, so we're reluctantly calling BS on the whole hipster thing, which is Dragsville, if hipsters actually even exist. The only thing that would improve this story would be if we found out that it was in fact Baltimore City that purchased the Persistence of Chaos with Vopercoin. But alas, that's just wishful thinking. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. 
Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. I had an article come by from Forbes. This is written by Kate O'Flaherty. Uh, and the title is Google just gave two billion Chrome users a reason to switch to Firefox. Uh, let's <laughs> dig in behind that headline here and uh, what's going on. So Google is working on a proposal called Manifest Version 3, mm -hmm. or V3, and this is how uh, plugins will work with the Chrome browser. And they're planning to restrict modern ad blocking through Chrome extensions. Hmm. Okay, okay, so there, there's a part of their API that's going to be deprecated in the next iteration of this Manifest 3 that will stop these calls that allow ads to be blocked without okay. getting too technical. Right. Okay. This right. seems uh, like something no one's asking for, except maybe the ad folks, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's it's interesting because there's been a lot of backlash from this from the Google user community. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody nobody wants this. You know, if you want an ad blocker, you should be able to use it. Google says you'll still be able to use ad blockers, but it it won't use the same API calls. It'll use a different API call that makes it less efficient and probably not as effective. They there's the other issue here that for enterprise users of Chrome, you will still have access to this API. Hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. This is presumably, 9to5Google says this is presumably to allow the development of custom Chrome extensions that uh, might not block ads, but it will still allow the same kind of features that would let you block ads. Hmm. Right. So it's, it, I find it interesting that Google is allowing customers that pay it to use it, but not allowing the general public to use it. You know, people like you and me, I don't pay to use Chrome. What is also interesting is that Google is, or Alphabet rather, is a very large owner of advertising services. Sure. Right? I think this represents a genuine conflict of interest here, hmm. uh, that they're not acting in the public's best interest with regard to the Chrome browser. You know, I think you, you own AdSense and AdWords, and they also own the Chrome browser, which has a 62% market share. Mm. which is the most popular browser on the market. Obviously, if they have 62%, right. nobody else has more. Yeah. Right? They have more than all the others combined. Okay. So if you have that kind of that kind of pull and you disable ad blocking so that your ad networks and other ad networks can now be more profitable, I don't know that that represents what I would consider to be fully ethical business practices. Hmm. You know, for me, the issue I have here is not so much being shown ads. I, I think right. that's a fair deal. Allow me to read your content for free, yep, uh, and I, I will look at an ad. But sure. the problem I have is all of the tracking. All the tracking that goes on is pretty insidious. Right. So if there were some happy medium here where you can still show me the ad, you can still 
uh, get credit for this ad was shown to someone, right. but not take all of my information back to those people and, and tell them who I am, where I was, and what I had for breakfast this morning, right. um, then I think we're okay. But well, Google said in a statement to 9to5Google that Chrome supports the use and development of ad blockers. We're actively working with the developer community to get feedback and iterate on the design of a privacy-preserving content filtering system that limits the amount of sensitive browser data that is shared with third parties. Hmm. So it sounds like that's what Google or Alphabet thinks they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know if, or at least that's what they want you to think they're doing. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. But I don't know if this is the best way to go about it. All right. Well, uh, we'll see what uh, the what the market chooses, right? The, yeah. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah. That's, that's what's going to happen. I think, yeah. I, think uh, I don't know. Will Google see, a, um, will Google see a, a loss of market share because of this? I predict they don't. Yeah, I predict I, they don't. The, the, the Chrome browser is a good browser. It works mm-hmm. very well. Yeah, um, I suspect you're right. Yeah, I, I don't think they'll see a they'll see an impact from this. Mm. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.